Did you know Chris Danielson is the writer and director of the critically acclaimed full-length film entitled Bible Idiots? So when his messages are to be a podcast, what should we name that outreach? You guessed it. So welcome to Bible Idiots, the teaching platform for Pastor Chris Danielson. Today, Chris shows us the seven miracles that take place at the cross. Great timing for this Passion Week. So open your Bible or device to Matthew chapter 27, and let's join Chris in the main auditorium at Fresh Encounter Church in Harlan, Iowa. I'm Emily Danielson, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. Today we're going to talk about awesome miracles at the cross. But before we do that, I must tell you this. I'm in the mood for victory because I, I play online games with my kids across the country. That's how we stay connected. And there is a, there's an international game that's really hard to win. It's really hard to win. And I found out that Ryan Peterson plays the same game. So Ryan and I were playing together Thursday night, and we could not get a win. Getting wins are hard. But last night, and I couldn't wait to tell him when he got here this morning, but he comes running up to me and he shows me a screenshot of his phone where he won, and I got two wins on Friday night. So yes, it's, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. If if you know what if if you're on the inside, it's really fun. If you're on the outside, we look like morons. And to be honest with you, we try to care, but we don't. We just have a good time. But it's out of that victory mindset that I was looking at the sermon going over this morning, and I'm just like, Lord, why why do we approach Passion Week with such you know skittishness? And so a lot of times on this Sunday, we'll talk about the palm branches, and we'll talk about Jesus riding in on a donkey, and the rocks would even cry out if the people didn't say, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, the Messiah is here. And I would love to have that sermon for you on a Palm Sunday, but this is the Sunday that I want to look at the cross, because next Sunday we look at the resurrection, and somehow between the palm leaves and the, and the st uh, stone rolled away, we kind of forget about the cross, and we kind of take some things for granted. One of the first things that I realized when I was going to, when God was calling my life to be something far different than what I thought it was going to be, it came down to the fact that what happened at the cross changed my life so much that I couldn't help but want to just keep finding out more and more and more and more. And I would work all day come home, open my Bible, I'd call a friend who was a pastor, and I'd say, what did you do today? He said, oh, I spent all day in 1 Samuel. I'm like, I want to spend all day in 1 Samuel. That's what I want to do. Okay, so to get this pastor gig, you got to give up half your wages, but you get to be in 1 Samuel all day? I'll do it. I'll do it. Why? Because of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the power to those of us who are lost, who are losers, who are sinners, who find salvation and he makes us saints. And there's seven awesome miracles at the cross. And some of them are from heaven above, some of them actually are from the earth beneath, and some of them are from under the earth. But all seven of them are in a class by themselves. Now instead of revealing these one at a time, like this wise scholar magician, I am an orator, and I will let you know the information when I think you need it. No. This is so cool that I printed them all for you on the back of the bulletin. They're right there. This is not a secret. This is a celebration. 
we win. We are victorious. So one week to Easter, and when Good Friday rolls around, a lot of us are going to Jesus' revolution. I, I wish we were going to the Passion of the Christ, because that's what I like to watch on Good Friday. Because it's the one day of the year that you, you really, I, I want to use the word must, but that's too strong. I really encourage you to reflect this Friday on what I'm teaching you today. And I know there's some of you, because you've told me, that after the service, sometimes God has you go back and rewatch it. And this, this morning our camera was malfunctioning, and immediately I thought, yep, that's par for the course. Because you're about to hear something that some of you in this room absolutely, positively need to hear because you are being called to win in the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's what this is for. So I want you to see Calvary. I want you to experience it between now and Resurrection Sunday next week. I want you to absorb it. I want you to dwell on it this Passion Week. And I want it to be something that is alive in your day-to-day world. Because I can't even get up in the morning and make a piece of toast without reflecting on this stuff. Which is why my life, became, I became a pastor because I couldn't do anything else. There's a lot of days, i got to be honest, especially some, some people with their problems. Whew, I wish I wasn't a pastor. And then God says, no, this is your calling. My grace is sufficient for you. Now pray for them. Now encourage them. Now go meet with them. And that's what I do. Some of you are called to the same thing. You just don't know it yet. Some of you are doing the same thing in your life, and you don't even realize you're doing it in the world where God has placed you. And that's what today is about. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the honoring of God's word. Get a stretch in, and then get settled in, and we're going to talk about these seven miracles. We're going to read verses 45 through 54 of Matthew chapter 27. You ready? I'm going to read in Jesus' name. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let's see if either Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion of those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. Please come down to this place now and just wrap your arms around your children. Let these be your words to your, your, your kids now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. First miracle that we're going to talk about right out of the chute, number one, is darkness over all the earth for three hours. You know, I've heard some skeptics, scoffers, Try to say that it was an eclipse. Impossible to be an eclipse because of what was actually written. Not just scripture, but supporting documents from that era too. It's really cool. The first is found in Luke 23, verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour at high noon. 
And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and that's until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the scriptures say, and the sun was darkened. That's the first miracle of the cross. At high noon, God blots out the sun. It was a darkness like in the land of Egypt that lasted three, uh, you know, like that lasted three days. It was like that. A concentration of force. It was a darkness that could be felt. Have you ever had a darkness so strong you could feel it? The only time in my life, and I've shared this with you guys before because it's the only analogy I have, is the one and only time I've ever been spelunking, which is going into caves. We were at Mount Rushmore, and there's uh, different caves you can go down into, and this one's, you know, geezer friendly. You know, you got this nice long path with a handrail all the way down. I mean, it's like 300 yards down there. It's quite the walk. And there's lights along the way, and then you get down, and the room is about the size of the sanctuary, maybe, maybe a little bit bigger. It's a big cave, and you're in there. And there must have been about 50 of us on this tour, and the uh, guide, you know, said, okay, everybody get good footing. If you've got to lean against the wall or go hold on to the handrail, you need to. And, you know, I'm, I'm younger than I am now. At my age now, I'd go hold on to the rail because it was a darkness you could feel. When he cut the lights, I was doing this, and I could not see my hands, and I could not tell if I was standing up straight. You know what I mean? So you, you kind of plant your feet. Then the dude did this. In the center of the room, he held up a Bic lighter and lit it. In a room this size with 50 people, and that Bic lighter illuminated the whole place. You could see into the corners from that one light because the darkness was that heavy. That's what's going on here. It's a darkness that could be felt. And it was a miracle of God. This was not an eclipse. An eclipse lasts but a very few minutes. This darkness lasted for three hours. And not only that, this darkness is talked about in a lot of extra-biblical writings as well. This is a Passover season. When the moon is full and on the opposite side of the earth from the sun, the eclipse is gradually uh, presented before the eye of the earth. So it could not have been an eclipse, even a long one. The longest one of our lifetime just happened a few years ago. You guys remember it? We happened to that day be driving from Michigan back to Alabama. And so we got into totality just south of the Kentucky border and in Tennessee, uh, up near the Kentucky border. There happens to be a little asphalt NASCAR track I happen to know about. And that's like four, four miles off the interstate. So we pulled in, because I knew they'd have a good parking lot, right? Common sense. So we pulled in there and we watched the totality you know, of, of what it was. I mean, and it was dark for maybe two minutes. Just dark enough to confuse some of the animals. And it was really weird, though. It was a weird feeling standing there in the dark on that day in August, just a couple years ago. But see, here's the thing. When this darkness happened, it happened on the voice of our Lord. And it was sudden. Suddenly the whole earth is darkened, and then no less suddenly does the light shine again after the passing of the third hour. A miracle of God, an intervention from heaven. The awesome silence of those three hours was frightening and terrible. This would have freaked people out, yes? The business around the cross is very significant. The soldiers are busy raising the three that were going to be crucified. They were busy gambling at the foot of Jesus for his garments in verse 35 of our chapter today. The throng passing up and down before the Lord, wagging their heads, throwing up their little fingers at him, talking to him, giving him insults and taunts. That's in 39, verse 39 and 40 of our pretext today. And guess what? The high priests, they were busy criticizing Pilate for the wording of the superscription above his head. Remember what it said? 
Here's the king of the Jews. They didn't like that. All this chaos is going on. Jesus gives up his spirit, and it's dark. A darkness you can feel. Awesome darkness. It's completely silent. No longer are any taunts or insults being thrown. All that was heard was the dripping of the blood from the wounds of our Savior. It's quiet, and it's heavy dark. It was frightful silence. In some texts it says they, they smote their breasts. They were terrified. In, in 2554 it said the people feared greatly. 2754 I should say. So what does the miracle mean? What's, what's, what's blotting out the sun mean? Well, I'm, I think it was the covering of the agony of our Lord when he paid the price of atoning redemption for our salvation. And when you stop this Good Friday, when you stop on Friday, sometime during your day, and between now and then, and you stop and think about the agony that Jesus went through for you, it changes the white noise of Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yeah, he rose on the third day. Hallelujah. It's a mystery in that darkness into which the human heart and mind can't enter. God crushed his son, Isaiah 53 describes it, smitten of God and afflicted. When God turns his face away, the son cries out, Eli, Eli, lama, my God, my God. The first time in Jesus' existence from the foundation of the creations of the world, he was totally alone, bearing the sins of the world. No mind could ever fathom the depths of the mystery of suffering of the Son of God for our sins when he cries out, why have you forsaken me? God just shut it out. He blotted out the sun so immense and so terrible that our payment of debt to death and sin, God turned away for three hours. So explain it. Why? You ready? Here it comes. We don't know. We don't understand. Just that God blotted it out and darkened the face of the sun. Sometimes the mysteries of God we have to accept. And that's the first miracle of, of Calvary. That's the first miracle of the cross. Secondly, let's talk about the veil of the temple. It was torn in two from top to bottom. Very specific. We, receive, we read in Matthew 27 and 49, 50, 51 of our text today. Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, the second mighty miracle of the cross, the veil being torn. See, the old rabbis of the Talmud say that the veil was a hand breadth thick, it was 60 feet long, it was 30 feet wide, and some, the same rabbis of the Talmud who were there when they wrote it down said it took 300 priests to raise it up, to lift it up. Josephus, in extra-biblical writings, tells us so strong and mighty was that veil that teams of horses could not pull it asunder. Yet at the voice of the Lord, it is finished, God took that veil and tore it from the top to the bottom. Do you know how significant that is? The people could not have done it. It was done by the hands of God from the top to the bottom, nor did the earthquake Take it and, and tear it. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rock split. That's verse 51. After the tearing of the veil, that's when the very earth shook. 
That's when the rocks were split. We'll get to that in a second. And it would have been an amazing thing had the earthquake literally torn this temple in two but somehow left the temple standing. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Leaving a building intact and I'm damaged, but being able to tear a temple in, uh, a veil in two. See, when you find, when, in, in just a minute, it's going to all make sense to you. It was a miracle of God tearing that veil in two. You see, it has in it a marvelous and incomparable lesson for us. You ready? The whole tabernacle and temple were built to show the cast outwardness of the sinful man and the unapproachableness of the holiness of God. Hear me again. Listen to this now. Don't miss this part. The whole tabernacle and temple were built to show very plainly, very commonly, that sinful man is cast outwardness and the holiness of God is unapproachable. So listen to the layout of the temple. Around it was a wall. And inside the court of the Gentiles another middle wall partition, and beyond the inside of the courts of Israel, another wall to the courts of the priests. Us as Gentiles could only come into the main common area. Then you had to be Jewish to take another step. Then you had to be a priest to take another step. And guess what was after that? Beyond the courts of the priests, that was where the brazen altar, then another obstruction, and a door into the holy place. And walking through the holy place with its seven-branched lampstand, its table of showbread, and before that veil, the golden altar of prayer and incense. Study the temple for five minutes and you see a beautiful display of God's consistency. And then there was the veil itself, blocking the entrance to the presence of God. You know what that was called? The Holy of Holies. Beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies, and the Ark of the Covenant was looking down on the mercy seat inside there. And God in Christ, now don't miss this, God in Christ tore that veil wide open from top to bottom. And every eye could look sweeping into the very presence of the Holy of Holies. The middle wall, the partition in Christ, is broken down. And now any man, any woman, anywhere without priest or mediator, without priest or mediator, can walk for himself and herself into the very presence of God and speak to the Lord about themselves. That's awesome. That's awesome. What does that mean? That means anywhere is as good as any place to call upon the name of the Lord. Harlan, Iowa is holy ground. Your kitchen counter is holy ground. Go to any fast food restaurant and sit down at one of those plastic folded, molded tables and pray in its holy ground. It's because God opened that up to us from the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. The author of Hebrew writes it like this. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, to the very holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, you can now walk in there by the new living way which he has consecrated for us. He has delivered it to us. He has given it to us through the veil that is his flesh. The tearing of the flesh of the Lord is the tearing of that veil. The author of Hebrews says in verse four, chapter, or first chapter 4, verse 16, he says, By which we are invited to come boldly into the presence 
of God's throne of grace. And there to ask for time, help in the time of need. That's an invitation, isn't it? When I read this verse, I think of my youngest son when he was like three years old. The kid had no shame. He still doesn't, but he, then it was worse. And we would be having a, a meeting or something in the living room with some people. And he would just come walking in, totally oblivious if somebody else was talking. He'd just walk up to me, dad, dad, blah, 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 blah. On one hand, I love the fact that my kids can do that. But on the other hand, it's hard when your kids can do that. If my phone rings and it's my kids, if they call me right now, I will probably answer it. <laughs> it's my kids. And God showed me through that that I have the same boldness I can approach our Heavenly Father in. Because I know you're going to agree maybe a little too loudly, but I am kind of like a three-year-old toddler walking around. <laughs> Just walking up to the Father. Hey, I need something. But no, we're invited to come to the throne of grace boldly. And, and he's our help in our time of need. He's also our help in our time of not need. If you don't have needs, he's also our help. It's amazing. The tearing of the veil, our entrance into the very presence of God, the second mighty miracle of the cross. Let's go to number three. The third great miracle of, Cal of Calvary and of the cross is the earth did quake and the rocks were split. Now, this goes down, the veil and then the rocks and the earthquake, at the very voice of the Son of God. At the very voice of the Son of God. When he shouted his words of victory, it is finished. Man, that is an incredible statement of accomplishment. And the very earth responded. Why? Because in the giving of the law that condemns us all, no man has kept the law to its perfection. And in the giving of the law to Moses, it shows that all of us have sinned and come short of the expectations and the glory of God. In the law, in its giving, do you remember what happened with Moses when he got the law in, in Exodus? The lightning flashed, the heavens were filled with the thunder voice of God, and the Almighty shook the earth at Mount Sinai. He shook Mount Sinai, you remember that? It quaked, it trembled, and the rocks were split. This is the law of God by which a man and a woman, when they are tried, they are condemned to death. That's the fact. Every one of us in this room, by God's law, is condemned to death. But at the cross, at Calvary, the love and grace and mercy of God were poured out in atoning redemption for us, and then the earth responded. All of the tremors at Sinai were absorbed at Calvary, and we are freed and we're forgiven in his grace and by his blood, and that my friends, gets me excited. It gets me really, really excited. One other thing, this response of the earth to the shout of Jesus, it is finished, it's a forerunner. It's an announcement and a promise of the regeneration of the earth one glorious and climactic and consuming day yet to come. And that's why I always say, and don't let it ever sound flippant to you, because when I say it to you, I mean it from the bottom of my heart, we together are going to party in the new Jerusalem, and it's going to be awesome. I've asked if there could be tater tot casserole. I haven't heard back. I 
In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says that all creation labors and travail because of the curse until that day when the Lord's chosen saints shall be manifest. The sons of God appear in glory and in victory. And when the Lord shouted, it is finished, the responding earth shook in wonder and in glory of the regeneration that is yet to come. That's a beautiful thing. Then God will literally come down and dwell with us, bringing forth that new heaven and that new earth. And there will be no more curse. Read it in Revelation 21 if if you're taking notes. Let's go on to the fourth miracle at Calvary. The graves were open and the saints that slept arose. Some of them Some of you have different translations, but basically the graves bust open and some of the saints come out. It's in verse 52. It seems as as if this earthquake was intelligent, that it were a living thing, that nature had gone beyond itself and nature, it was selective. The earthquake opened up the graves, that is, of the saints, just of the saints, This godly man, this godly woman, those who had fallen asleep in the Lord, their graves were opened, and that select few, what a marvelous miracle of God's promise and a demonstration of what Christ is and what he has done and what he will do. Look at that, the graves are opened. Is that not why we're here? Is that not why we're here? We're here because we know those of us in this room that have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, we said we're a sinner, we can't save ourselves, Christ then, we give you all of our trust by faith, and he gives us his redemptive blood, it's because death now long, no longer has its sting. Our graves will be opened, yes? See, that was Friday afternoon. And the Sabbath, at sundown, no work is permitted on the Sabbath. So those graves were open to view Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and it was an open exhibition of the ableness and power of our Lord Jesus to break the bonds of death and of the grave. And he tells us so before he's even risen from the dead. He shows us through the miracle at the cross. And the second thing, it was in line with the breaking open of the prison doors of Hades, of hell. Revelation 1.18, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he entered the realm of the dead, he then entered into Hades, the earth shook, the graves were opened when our Lord became master of sin and death in the grave. It happened at that moment, and it was an incredible time. John wrote it like this when he saw the exalted and resurrected Lord. Now, I just put a few little paraphrases of verses 9 through 18 without reading the whole thing. It's on the screen for you. But you can go read the whole thing, 9 through 18. I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not. What a loving gesture that is. Wish we had more time to just go into that gesture, his right hand. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I, Jesus is talking, and I, I have the keys of hell and of death. In my hands are the keys of the grave and of death. And I look at Jesus and I say, my King and my Lord, why would anyone not? This is an open exhibition of the power of Christ when he entered the realm of the dead. He descends into hell. The graves were open. Hades' prison doors were open. And God's saints resurrected walk out in verses 52 and 53 of our text today. That's amazing. Let's go on to the fifth. Not that they just came out. The fifth 
marvelous miracle at Calvary. The bodies of the saint came out of the grave and then appeared to many. They went into the holy city and they appeared to many after his resurrection. That's one of the most marvelous things written in the book of God. And to me, in that miracle are two miracles. One is the resurrection of the body of the saints after the Lord's resurrection going into the city. These bodies have been raised from the dead. And, and then we have it translated here, they appeared unto many. Is that one, two miracles, whatever, you decide. But the bottom line is it's absolutely incredible. In the scholarly breakdown of this passage, because once you get in this deep, you got to keep going, right? you gotta, you got to see how far down does this rabbit hole go. And let me tell you, there are hundreds of scholars you can stand on their shoulders and get the information I'm about to share with you. you just got to put in the work. But it's so rewarding when you do because it all ties together so well. In the scholarly breakdown, wordsmiths in the original language point out how important it is to understand the word enfanzion. Enfanzion. That means to declare, to manifest, to show forth in a passive voice. The subject is acted upon. So what does that mean? That means that those who were raised from the dead, they manifested themselves. They showed themselves. They made themselves known. After the resurrection of the Lord, these saints did enfantheon, and they made themselves known. They showed themselves who they were. And that's the second part of the miracle. And so all that said, then what happens? Well, there's silence. There's nothing else to talk about, nothing else to find. There's a silence of Scripture here. And I think it's almost as wondrous as the miracle itself. Who were they, these saints who were raised from the dead? Had they just died? Had they been dead for generations? Is this like zombies? I mean, what are we, what are we looking at here? It doesn't say. And I've looked, so you don't have to. But if you want to, go ahead. But I've searched and searched and searched for credible, and that's the key word, credible supporting information for this. What did they look like? How were they dressed? Did they walk down the streets? Did they come into the house? Did they knock at the door? Did they suddenly appear? How were they known? It says here they made themselves known. As such, how did they do that? Was it like an intuitive spiritual knowledge such, such as disciples immediately recognizing Elijah and Moses? Have you ever wondered on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples immediately recognized it was Elijah and Moses? How? They'd been dead for a thousand years. The scriptures never tell us. It never tells us. God somehow has hidden it from, the, from our eyes. And some of these secrets and mysteries of God, 10,000 times do I wish I had the answers, but I do not. But you know what the Bible says? By faith, we please the Lord. And so by faith, we go to the Lord with some of these questions, and he will lay it on your spirit, and you know what it'll be? Well with you. It'll be well with you. Because your Father in heaven, your Lord and King, Jesus Christ, has you. He's got this. And so then when I study through the book of Revelation, I get to the center of the book and it's difficult. And I thought, well, when I get to the resurrection and the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth, it'll be easier. I'm telling you, it's ten times harder. The farther you go on this scholarly journey, you want to know something, the more you realize you don't know and you're probably never going to know until the other side. So by faith, you please the Lord. Once again, a thousand things press in on my little brain that I wish I knew, and God hides it, hides it from our eyes. And in the law of Moses, we are forbidden. Are you ready now? Because here's, here's another avenue some people take, and it's a huge mistake. 
We are forbidden by the law of Moses on the pain of death to seek these answers among the dead. We simply don't know. And if you seek the answers among the dead, I don't want to know about it because I feel bad for you. Because that's not our journey. How is that spiritual body? Have you, have you ever even thought about the spiritual bodies they're talking about here? That's like spirit, body. Body, spirit. How do these two things come together? It's like an unsound description. We don't know. God hides it from our eyes. So it's a marvelous miracle here. How did Jesus say, stretch out your hand and it be healed? And the dude stretches out his hands and it's whole. How did he do that? I don't know. But I believe with every part of my being that he did. One thing we do know is that the Apostle Paul writes for us the order of our resurrection bodies. Did you know that? Anybody ever tell you that? Now, this is a little bit of an interpretation on my part, but I think Paul writes the order of our resurrection, the order of it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, As in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every one of us in his own order. And the word there is like an army, the, you know, an army passing by, like one platoon, two platoons, three platoons. It's like a passing by situation. So he gives us the order. First, Christ is raised from the dead. Second, the first fruits, and these are those saints who were raised from the dead and went into the holy city and made themselves known as themselves unto the people of God. Third, they that are Christ at his coming. That, that's us, right? When the Lord shall come with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first and we shall all be changed. So there's an order. One, two, three, four. First Christ, second the marvelous miracle at the cross, the bodies of the saints arose and went into the city and revealed. That is God's eternal presence, power, showed itself in the dissolution of these bodies. He raised them from the dead and they appeared as themselves unto the people. Did you get that? Because when I was reviewing this, I'm like, I don't think people are going to get that. Listen to me now. i got to do it one more time because I don't want you to miss this. I can't understand it, but I'm going to try to make you understand it. Listen now. God's eternal presence and power showed itself in the disillusion of these bodies. He raised them from the dead, and they appeared as themselves unto the people. How? I don't know. All I know is God says that he marks the dust of his saints. Some glorious day he shall speak to that dust and raise it to himself for glory. You, yourself, made known to God. And he raises you up on your day. That's a miracle of God. It belongs to his life-giving, awesome power and eternal dominion. Think about that. As saints, we will be ourselves. See, when I read the Bible and they talk about having a new body and all that, I'm thinking I'm going to be a different version, a better version of me. The Scripture says, no, no, loser boy. Jesus will change you, and he will complete that sanctification process someday, but you will always be you. Wherever you go, there you are. Emily hates that phrase. She, I mean, she hates it with a passion. So I use it all the time. <laughs> 
I remember when we went out to the Bering Sea in Alaska, I had it in my head when we finally got there, I'd feel different and I'd get there and I'm still me. Was it glorious? Yes, it was wonderful to be on the Bering Sea in the Bristol Bay. It was great. But I was still me. Wherever you go, there you are. And that's why we need Jesus and the transforming of our mind. Follow? The sanctification after justification is awesome. Miracle number six as we bring it home today. They didn't break Jesus' legs and pierced him with blood and water coming forth. John describes it as a miracle in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 33. The miracle number six is when the soldiers came, they broke the legs first and then the second of the criminals. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead already. And they broke not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear. And then they used the word here, nuso, N-U-S-S-O. That's the only time in the Bible the word is used. Nuso. It means stab. It means pierce. It means thrust. One of the soldiers took an iron spear and stabbed, thrust it into the Lord Jesus. John writes that as though he could hardly believe what he saw. He writes that it was so wondrous sight to be held. That's the way John is writing here. That when a soldier pulled the spear out of the side of Jesus, it flowed with the flood of water and blood. Why is that significant? Why does John think that that matters? In his letter, the disciple writes, "He, or I'm sorry, who is he that overcomes the world? It is he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. See, to John, it was a miracle what he saw. It was a miracle that he saw the crimson life of blood being poured out at the actual atonement for our actual sins. Jesus died a sacrificial death, and John said, I saw the blood of his life poured out, but also water. What is water? Water in the Bible is the symbol of the cleansing word. You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. He has sanctified and cleansed the church with the washing of water by the word. The word of God symbolizes in the water. And also, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God in the washing of regeneration. And John, as he looks at the Lord, when the spear was pulled out of his side, there came blood and water. Atoning blood. Crimson blood of life, the water, the gospel message that cleanses us from all our sins, and the Spirit of God that then regenerates us and makes us new. And it's an amazing thing. Phil Wickham wrote a song years ago, and I just can't get over the name of the song is called True Love. I can't get over how great of a written song this is. This is just one of the chorus lines. You ready? When blood and water hits the ground, worlds we couldn't move came crashing down. We were free and made alive the day that true love died. Miracle 7 is bringing it home for us today. Miracle 7 is the last one. And it is the actual preaching of the gospel of the cross. That's a miracle. Look, the cross was an instrument of execution, brothers and sisters. This is not something to be honored. This is the same thing 
in the Roman days is what an electric chair is to us today. Can you think about what it would be like if all of our churches had an electric chair on the top of it? If all of us wore little electric chairs around our neck. We had rings that had electric chairs on them. Think how stupid that is. That's what's going on. It was a sign in the days of the Roman Empire of a horrible execution of a high felon, high traitor who needed to be punished in a way that would make them suffer. They impaled them. They stabbed them. They pounded spikes into them and then hung them up for everybody to see. The Romans invented crucifixion. Sometimes the sufferer would stay there three, four, five days in unspeakable agony and the sign of often or awful, awful suffering and penalty. Yet, God says, in a miracle way, that's the symbol of saving grace to you. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants to brag about the cross. He wrote to the church at Corinth, I refuse to know no other thing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can never look with honest, open eyes at the cross of Christ and not see the ultimate, 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 ultimate sacrifice because he loved you. Just you. And if it had only been you, he loves you so much he would have still gone. What an amazing thing that that instrument of execution on Christ and how he died should be at the top of our churches, around our necks, a charm bracelet. Church stained glass windows with an, with an electric chair there, right? No, it's the cross of Christ. This is the gospel of our salvation. The cross on which Jesus was crucified and did die for our sins. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of God. And there were seven of them that went down that day. Some of you need a holy moment in your life. And some of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we get these holy moments when they recharge our batteries, but for some of you, you don't know what that is yet. So I'm going to ask you all to stand right now. I want the band to stay where you are. And I want you to stand and I want you to close your eyes and bow your head and I want you to pray with me. Our Lord in heaven, never are we more humbled than when we stand at the foot of the cross. Never are we more loved. Jesus, this you did for me. And in this moment, as I continue my prayer, I'd like you to pray along with me on your journey. If you know Jesus, make this part of your prayer of thanksgiving. If you don't know Jesus, maybe it's time that you admitted your sinfulness and need of a Savior. Had there been no other soul lost in this world except for you and me, he still would have suffered and died for us. Oh, wonderful Savior, we pray today that we can show you our profound and everlasting thanksgiving and gratitude, Lord, for saving us, for dying for us, for paying our debt and penalty of sin. We offer to you, Lord, the humble sacrifice and thanksgiving of our lives.
With infinite love and welcome, we await your coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. To those of you who've made that decision now in your heart, I want you to know Jesus wants to speak to you and confirm that it's the greatest step you will ever take. Band, please come forward. Amen. Let me have your attention as the band gets closer. And you can stand, remain standing as we sing our last song, and I'll come back for the benediction. I want you to know, time is short. Jesus may tarry for 500 years and America can still fall. Jesus could tarry and keep America strong for 500 years, and your day could be your end today. Time is short. Jesus is calling you. He's pulling on your heart. I want strong Christians to come and let's celebrate together. And those of you who are new in the faith, we're, a lot of us are here to help you. It's an awesome thing, awesome thing to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of my husband, Chris Danielson. BibleIdiots.com is still the website for this show, but we have grown. The new parent ministry is found at freshroadmedia.com. We would love to have you join us on our sister broadcast, a talk show that walks out Christian living and Bible apologetics entitled No Apology with Emily and Chris, a weekly download from freshroadmedia.com. Both broadcasts are listener supported and we would love to have you join us as the Lord leads. I'm Emily Danielson, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And may you see the blessings of the Lord as you go and serve your King.